Following the methodology from our best-selling book, The Resilient Shield, we are delighted to announce the inaugural Resilience Retreat, which will occur in far north Queensland between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 30th of October. The whole point of the retreat is to give you the ability to build your shield, to develop your knowledge and understanding of the key principles related to resilience, to enhance your toolkit and to optimise your performance. Come and be part of an incredible group of humans that are like-minded. Meet our facilitators and motivational speakers. To find out more, email us at retreat at resilientshield.com. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 Podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Ben, how are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you? Very well. <laughs> Word association. Weed, pot, reefer, grass, dope, ganja, hash. All of these things conjure in your brain illicit use. But yep. what about licit use? <laughs> when you say them like that... <laughs> <laughs> but we're actually going to talk to Dr. Michael Mumford, mm. who um, is prescribing cannabis and cannabinoids as an alternative to traditional drugs to get people off the cycle of addiction on things like opiates. Yeah, and as we've covered in a, a couple of previous episodes, you know, clearly um, from a military perspective, there's a lot of people hurting, um, a lot of people with PTSD, a lot of people with issues as a result of their service. And we've spoken to some amazing people like Dr. Richard Magdengard about some of the different and um, uh, it seems from the, the evidence that's starting to accrue some of the more effective methods of, of treating these kind of um, uh, conditions. And certainly one of the interesting ones is the, the use of medicinal marijuana and cannabinoids. Yeah, and the science is out there. Um, Michael has got a research project with the University of Wollongong. We'll touch on that. Naturally, we'll talk about the problems that prescribed cannabinoids solve and also if there is a downside risk and why in Australia have we been so slow to the party on medicinal cannabis. Yeah, we'll also talk about um, his work uh, pioneering the Veterans Access Scheme, which I think is really interesting because not only is he looking at the the treatment of um, the, the particular condition, but also um, looking at trying to streamline some of the bureaucracy mm. that, that can be an added complication for a lot of veterans seeking help. And what makes the veteran demographic different that they need a Veterans Access Scheme that's important also to ponder. Mm. And I think, you know, wider than just the veteran community, um, we're going to talk a lot about the, the kind of science behind uh, mm. these kind of treatments for all sorts of things, including chronic pain and depression and anxiety. So not just veteran specific um, uh, sort of applications. Let's get on with the show. The 
Well, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Welcome, Ben. G'day, Tim. What do you know about opioids, cannabis, and the benefits, medicinal benefits? Yeah, not much. I I led led a very sheltered little sort of upbringing. I I was not dabbling in that sort of stuff as as a lot of people did at high school. Joined the army and was very good boy throughout. I'm talking medicinal benefits. Yeah, no, (laughs) likewise none. (laughs) Well, on today's show, we've got Dr. Michael Mumford. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, and thank you very much for having me on the show. And we are going to explore that very theme. Uh, Michael, before we get to that, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and what got you to where you are now? Certainly. Um, So I was um, Wagga, born and bred. Um, Grew up in in Wagga, family, uh, three three brothers. Um, Didn't have much to do with the military as as in in our close family. Obviously, a little bit distant. We did have some sort of military connections. Surely, uh, as a teenager, you got, you got a, in a punch up at the the RE or the Cry or whatever the local pub is in Wagga. Oh, there's plenty of pubs in Wagga, and um, there's obviously <laughs> the very big military um, yeah. component there with Kapuka and uh, the RAF base. But um, through school, obviously, to get out of Wagga, there was not many avenues, so it was sort of either be recruited into places like um, the military or ADFA, or go to like BHP for scholarships. Um, so I took the military option, uh, went through through ADFA and um, originally joined the engineers and had a um, very interesting career through the engineer pathway. Um, and then obviously um, uh, joined um, or decided to transfer to, to medicine. And um, that's where we, we sort of are now. So could, could you talk? Could you talk to the the sort of military medicine process? I, I think a lot of our listeners would be interested. Clearly, my brother did it uh, or became a doctor through the army, but did it kind of as a postgrad and then straight in. But but from a serving perspective, can you tell us about the process of going from being an engineer to being a doctor? Yeah. Um, so obviously, going through school had no no interest in in medicine. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do and. It wasn't until um, in, in the military um, was involved with the engineers. Um, and through that, I was lucky enough to be able to um, have some very, um, I think, lucky lucky postings um, and had very good, good roles. So it was up in um, Darwin, uh, went to Timor and came down to Sydney and was with the um, well, then the Incident Response Regiment and got to work with... Um, special operations, uh, went overseas to Afghanistan. And that was probably where I really got um, sort of interested and involved in, in the whole medicine thing. Mm. And so from there, coming back from what I'd say is probably one of the highlights of my um, army career, came back to Australia and had that sort of turning point as to what, what way I was going to go moving mm. forward. And that's when... Um, I decided to, to try or throw my hat in the ring for um, an application into um, getting into a school of medicine, um, passed the exams, got accepted to one of the universities, and then got support through um, military to, to go through and study, which was very good. 
Oh, that's awesome. And can you tell us a bit about the, the infamous GAMSAT? Uh, that's the, as I understand, the, the entrance exam. I did a GMAT, a, a, a kind of business equivalent for my MBA, and I think I've still got PTSD from that. That was a, an extremely, um, I thought, a, a, an excellent process for screening what they were trying to screen for, but a very difficult process to, to sort of get up to. Was was GAMSAT a pretty similar sort of uh, trial for you, Mike? Um GAMSAT was an interesting process, being that um, I'd come back from overseas, had that um, moment of clarity of, I'll, I'll try this, and had sort of looked into it a little bit, realised there was sort of a, a series of exams involved in it, um, had a look at a practice exam and thought, I'll, I'll go to this. And it wasn't until I was actually there that many people were sitting there with very, very thick textbooks and sort of going through things and telling me that this was their third or fourth attempt. And it was yep. like... Not really sure what I've got myself in for here. So <laughs> it was a very interesting day, shall I say. Yeah. Yeah, I had a similar thing. I did that practice, Jim. I, I literally thought, how hard could this be? And um, turns out very hard is <laughs> <laughs> the answer. Um, yeah, it was a, a bucket of cold water over my head, but a, a good catalyst to get studying. Yeah, it was a bit of a rude shock. But anyway, we got through it, so that was good. How did you enjoy the process of studying medicine? Uh, look, I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I went through um, the Wollongong University program and it was very much a practical um, way of studying. And I think being a little bit older, having sort of been out of uni for a while, I found that quite a good way of doing it. So it wasn't all just textbooks and sitting in front of lectures and things. It was actually getting out into the community, um, spending time in, in uh, the general practice role, spending a year in the hospital system as well. So it was very, very practical. And I think I probably learned better that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that suited my, my learning skills and ability. And then with a stethoscope around your neck, um, how did you find being a regimental medical officer, a medical officer in, in general, and, and probably a, a, a segue potentially, what was the medical system not delivering that's piqued your interest into what you're doing now? Um, so my return to, to medicine in the military was a, a bit of an interesting one. I think I'd, I'd had a very, I would say a very good, um, had some really good aspects in my engineering career. I'd had this gap of about six years where I'd sort of left um, being a civilian for that period of time and then walking back into um, returning to the military, I suppose. Um, it was interesting because most of the other um, colleagues who I'd sort of joined, well, rejoined at that point, were fresh off the street. So they were sort of captains, lieutenants and things. Um, I was at the point where I was going to be promoted in a, in a regimental officer position as in before I left mm-hmm. so I'd done everything up to you know all the promotions for major coming back in um, I had to return to to learning what a what a troop was what a you know all the different ranks um, and that was a bit sort of I, I guess a bit frustrating um, that there was no sort of uh, recognition for what we'd done before. That it was very thing, much, yeah. you know, this is your new role, this is what you are, you know nothing, you're back at the bottom. Um, and that was a bit frustrating. Um, it was, I guess I wanted to return to where I'd been in the military, as in I'd worked in the Special Forces. They're very um, dedicated people. They, they know what they're doing, um, very job-focused, and that's where I wanted to be. And um, 
I guess one of the things I'd say is we're probably very pigeonholed that this is where you are. You have to go through all these steps. There's no recognition of anything you've done, anything else. And I guess that was quite a frustrating process for me. Um, and when, I guess going, going sort of back a little bit, when I was in RMC, I was lucky enough to have a sort of close family friend was a, um, was, well, was the Vice Chief of Defence Force at that time. I remember sitting with him, and this is one of the big things I remember was he, he sort of, um, when we're talking about careers and things, and he said, one of the things you'll, you'll always come back to is you'll know when it's time and don't ever overstay your welcome. Mm -hmm. I thought at the time I didn't really think too much of it, but getting back in and going through some of the things I was going through there, that's one of the things that I came back to that it was time and I'd probably overstayed my welcome. And um, that's when, when I departed. And I guess I thought I could do more in the military. As in, I thought I could bring some of my experience and different things like that. And I don't think I was, um, that was gonna be allowed. Mm. And I think once I got out, um, I think I was a bit, bit annoyed and a bit upset about that. And I sort of distanced myself from the military and from military people. And it's only after a period of time, I started seeing one or two, and they were actually ex-soldiers of mine. So going all the way back to when I was an engineer, original troop, troop commander. So some very young people, they were very active. Um, and they'd since sort of progressed through their careers as well. And some of them had actually ended up in the special forces and they were pretty broken and seeing them was probably the turning point which is good um yeah and being able to help them was good yeah no that's awesome and it's interesting your point about not overstaying your welcome i think a, a number of the ex-defence people I speak to, there is that sweet spot. And, and I don't know what's worse, people who sort of get out for whatever reason before they're ready, before they've scratched that itch uh, from the military side, or the people who, who hang on after after that point where they've, um, you know, might have uh, might have been better off leaving. But yeah, in terms of, um, you know, helping people, which is, is clearly what you're, you're all about, both from the, the medical perspective and also from the the, the wider um, aspects. Um, how did you get into the, the role looking at um, sort of medicinal applications of opioids and cannabinoids as a, as a means of doing that? What sort of, um, I guess, piqued your interest in there? Yeah, so um, I, was, I worked down in, in Dapto, so down just south of Wollongong. A um, lot, lot of people um, who are on long wait lists for operations and things like that. My apologies if the dog is... <laughs> that sound, that sounds like a big dog. What sort of dog is that? Um, it's a German short-haired pointer. Okay. So it's, um, she wants to go for a run because I'm home. It's time to go. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of people who were, um, you know, chronic, chronic pain, chronic conditions, huge amounts of opiates, um, huge amounts of sort of painkillers, valiums, the benzodiazepines, all the different things, mm. and probably seeing more of the, the veterans coming through and what they were discharged with. Um, and I think the, um, you know, the Royal Commission has sort of mentioned some of these things, the cocktails that people are on and sort of trying to work out what you could do with them. Like, you know, you'd ring up um, and get these huge authority scripts for, you know, huge numbers of endones, you know, 
Alexia's um, uh, Tarjan's like huge numbers and it'd just be, yep, no worries. And it'd, it'd just be handed to them. And you'd think these people, and this is where I've seen, you know, the ones that I used to work with that were sort of happy, young, fit people, and they just looked like zombies. Yeah, and sort right. of looking for the alternate um, or what we could do. So that's when I started looking into it. Um, and back in the day, so back a couple of years ago, it was a very um, sort of tricky process. There was a lot to it, time consuming. It had to go through sort of New South Wales Health and sort of the TGAT. So several levels of approval. So it could take three or four weeks to get someone onto the cannabis. Um, but seeing the results was was good. Um, and so the more we sort of saw these results and having you know, the physios comment or other specialists comment that this person was starting to, um, to really change and be more involved in different things, getting better results out of the physios and, and even family members saying that they were starting to be sort of more of a, a human again, back to what they used to be, was really good to see. Jury's been out on um, medicinal cannabis in a number of countries, including in North America. Why have we been so slow on it if the values are very clear, the value of, of prescribing it's very clear? Is it just the bureaucracy, Michael? Look, I think I think it's people's perceptions that it, it's always been that street drug or it's been that illegal substance. Um, probably the lack of lack of understanding or people's perception seeing people as you know that that stone or that person who's just using it recreational and, and not doing anything whereas when we can have like actually um manage it properly and use it where it's sort of in a guided step by you know stepwise process in a to try and achieve something i think it can be used quite well so i think it's trying to change that perception of a lot of people mm. We always sort of talk to you know different doctors or people, and it's always well, there's no evidence, or you know it's yeah. a, it's a tricky process, or it's a something like that. So it's it's trying to you know build that body of evidence and start using it, um, and that's where we're doing some work with um, University of uh, Wollongong, and actually trying to quantify things and actually trying to say, okay, this is what we've done, this is how we're doing it. So we've we've done some um, initial research that's just finished, which is quite good. And those results are, you know, um, I think quite good. Mm. How how does what you prescribe differ from street weed? Um, <laughs> you, said, you sounded very old when you said street <laughs> weed. I don't think that's what the kids are calling it. I don't think ganja. So. <laughs> um, the, I guess one is it's it's illegal to buy on the street and it's legal for us to prescribe. Um, two, it's, it's very heavily regulated. So we know it's a clean product. So we know that there's each time we buy the product or each time someone gets the product, it's, it's going to be the same. So there's, there's that sort of regulatory process around it. There's yeah. no, nothing added to it. There's nothing, um, you know, that you're going to get a good bag, a bad bag, anything like that. It's, it's going to be exactly no the same. Lawn clippings and oregano or anything, <laughs> some, some black tea leaves. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like that. No, it's good. Um, but I think the same. The best part is you can get different bits to it. So depending on what you're trying to do, um, you know, a lot of the things are oils, but 
medicinally, you can take things out of it. You can sort of say, okay, I only want this or this percentage, or you can you can change what you're looking for depending on what you're trying to treat. Um, and that's that's probably the best part of it is that mm. you know there's so many different conditions that they say it can assist, and it's not going to be the magic solution for everyone, but for people at the end of the road who've tried just about everything and they're trying to look for some sort of solution to help them, it, it can, for some of those people, be quite good. Now, I'm going to caveat my next question with the fact you are talking to a very lay audience here in Tim and I. Bob, Bob Marley <laughs> sitting across the table from me. <laughs> but um, can you talk us through the science? Like, how does this work? Um, are we talking THC? Are we talking CBD? I don't even know what those acronyms stand for. But what are the, the sort of bits and how does the neurochemistry work? Um, to you said there's a different a range of different applications um, that you can use it for. What sort of things can it do to help people um, from a medicinal sense? Yeah, so the the TGA is approved. It's, it's, there's about a hundred different conditions that they say we can we can prescribe it for, um, and so they they range for everything from chronic pain to anxiety to you know, seizures to migraines to there's a whole lot of different things. Um, the, I guess the other caveat I'll put on it is it doesn't work for everyone. So it's not something that, you know, is a magic solution. And that's one of the big things that when people do come and talk to us, they think that they're here, it's going to work. And so, yes, it does work for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for everyone. A couple of things in it would be things like the costs and the legalities around it. So I can sort of touch base on those in a minute. It's... It's basically a natural way of supplementing sort of the, the messenger systems within the within the human body. So it's, you know, all the synthetic drugs are trying to um, uh, sort of achieve something within the body, some sort of, you know, increase a messenger system, sort of block a messenger system, do something like that. So this is a natural form where we're trying to um, not smoke it and breathe it centrally so we can get a euphoric effect from it. We're trying to use the, the dis, yeah, and you said before, you know, the CBDs and the THCs, they're, they're the two main active ingredients, but there's a whole range of other components within the plant that they're doing research on, but these are the two major ones you get. And, and they're trying to sort of upregulate those systems so that um, where they say the body is in deficiency or is deficient in certain things, we can supplement it with, with the, um, a natural product to try and um, improve those messenger systems, you know, improve pain management, you know, improve um, depression and anxiety and all those different things. And so does it have an effect on things? Like my understanding is that the, the dopamine type system is, a, is very much geared toward motivation and, and getting sort of back into things. And then some of the, the feel-good systems, the serotonins and even the, the oxytocins, are we talking those kind of uh, sort of systems? Yes, those sort of systems is, is where we're trying to do. So it depends, you know, if we're using, um, you know, the THCs or the CBDs, it's depending on what we're trying to target. Um, but the, the main one is that it's, I, I guess we're trying to say that we're, we're able to achieve um, some of those things through the different combinations. So the CBD um, is, is sort of the milder aspect, I suppose you'd say. So it's meant to be better for sort of the anxiety, um, the anti-inflammatory aspects. Um, it's not meant to be sedative, um, where C, uh, with THC is the stronger, or it's the psychoactive component. It, it is sort of 
better for the pain management. Um, it's it's better for um, if we're trying to improve um, sleep quality and things. So people with PTSD, um, that's a better better option. But it's um, I guess the big one is the whole legalities and the, the driving ability and things like that, which mm. has to come into it. Um, whereas a lot of other medications, they probably make you more um, more sedated, but we don't test them on a roadside drug test. So it's it's sort of yeah, trying to work out which way we can go and who's able to do, yeah, who we're able to treat with what. What What's the downside? What's the risk of taking uh, medicinal marijuana? Um, in, in terms of addiction, I suppose a lot of people sort of talk about, it, it seems to be a lot lower, or it is a lot lower down the addiction sort of tree than some of the opiates and things. Um, we find it quite safe for people to, to start and stop, whereas if people are on, you know, say Valiums or, or different things every day of the week, it, um, you know, the addiction or to start and stop that medication is, is very problematic. You can go into withdrawals and things. Um, the, the medicinal cannabis is, is a lot safer in, in higher doses, as in if, you know, overdose and things like that. It's, it doesn't shut down the respiratory system like some of the other medications. Um, and so it does, yeah, it, it's a lot safer in that respect, being a more natural sort of product. Um, yeah. So it is possible to overdose? Look, most, you know, if you've worked in ED or things like that, most people have had too much um, cannabis. They're, they're very sick. They vomit quite a lot. They feel very sorry for themselves. But you don't see too many people who, you know, go too much further than that. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. unlike, you know, people who have too many Valiums or too many endomes. Like it's pretty much a, a sort of terminal event. Um, too much medicinal cannabis or too much cannabis even, it's, it's yeah, it'll make you feel pretty unwell. But that's about it, so... I'm interested if you've looked also at some of the the broader range of, of drugs of, of illegal, currently illegal drugs and and in particular the the hallucinogenics. Um, Tim and I both read and enjoyed uh, Michael Pollan's book um, How to Change Your Mind and I found that a very interesting sort of plot arc in terms of the the original applications and, and medicinal benefits of these being studied in the 60s and then a real uh, sort of counter narrative coming out uh, societally which has left a legacy to this day and we're only just discovering potentially some of the benefits of drugs like psilocybin and even MDMA mm. for, for these kind of applications. Have, have you looked at those or um, done sort of peripheral uh, reviews of that sort of stuff? I've, I've looked a little bit around the edges. Um, I guess I, I can see the benefit in a lot of those medications. And I know there's a lot of research and things coming out of the States, especially in um, you know, veterans. Uh, and they seem to be doing some very good work. For me, um, I think I'm like you, that 
you know, didn't touch drugs through school, went into the military, it was very much a zero tolerance policy, all those different things. I've, I've been able to sort of go, okay, I'll step towards the, the medicinal cannabis. And I think that's you know, a bit of a step to the right. I think at this point in time, I don't have the capacity or, or the ability to step that little bit further. I think that's another step to the other side. I can see that it's, it's probably going to be quite beneficial, but for me, I've not sort of looked into it, looked into prescribing it to anything like that at this point in time. What's the perception of your medical peers on uh, you prescribing cannabinoids? Is there resistance amongst the medical community or reluctance? Look, there, there is. Um, and I, I guess that's one of the, um, the things we're doing at the moment is we've got um, a program called the Veteran Access Scheme, um, which we can talk about in a little bit. Part of that program is we're trying to... Um, assist veterans onto medicinal cannabis, but we're trying to use or help educate the veterans, um, their own GP. So we, we're trying to prevent fragmented care, trying to get their care looked after by their normal GP and encourage if the veteran wants to use medicinal cannabis, try and assist them to get onto that process and, and assist the um, their, their normal GP to manage that. A lot of People or a lot of the, the GPs are interested. Um, they want to know how it's how it's benefiting them or be involved in sort of hearing or um, how we're recommending to de-prescribe different uh, medications with them, but they are not wanting to be the prescriber. So they're sort of interested but cautious. Um, a lot of them are, you know, until there's more evidence or until it's more widely accepted or until you know, others do it, it sort of seems a little bit of a step for them. Um, and I think the perception is changing, but I think it's still, there's still a way to, to move forward, as in still time to, to sort of get more people across the line. And you mentioned before that part of what you're doing is is trying to get that that sort of research base and those peer review studies. Could you, you talk to the, the project you're working on with the University of Wollongong on this? Yeah, so um, we're working with um, the School of Medicine and some some of the medical students there and the, the research that we're doing. So we've been able to look at the de-prescribing of opiates, benzos and antidepressants within a, a cohort of people that we've got on medicinal cannabis. So the research, um, they've just sort of completed and given us the, the draft forms of it, but they basically took about 500 um, patients and they were sort of looking for, there was some big sort of exclusion criteria in there, but basically trying to pick the ones that are sort of chronic pain on opiates, on you know, Valiums, antidepressants mm -hmm. at the start, and then look at um, several indicators, so quality of life indicators, pain scores, um, the medications that they're on at the start, the reasons why they're on it, and then, you know, after a period of time, what medications they were then on, what they deemed their uh, quality of life, pain scores and things like that were. And it's been quite, um, it's quite interesting to watch. So I can see it when I talk to the patients sort of anecdotally, I can see that they're they appear better, they sound better, they're saying they sleep better, but to actually quantify it and then sort of say, okay, over that group, you know, mm. the pain scores on average have gone down um, several points. Um, so they're talking about 
Um, opiate use has, has dropped between 50 and 90%. Uh, the benzodiazepine usage, um, about one third of them have stopped totally and another one third have reduced their doses. Um, and you know, the pain scores have typically dropped three points and you know, the quality of life indicators, again, have dropped one to three points. Um, interestingly though, when we look at the cohort that, that I had, as in from, from where we are, they say typically chronic pain is in the, the older um, adults. So sort of around the 60 to 70 age would be the typical uh, in most uh, research papers that they looked at. Because there's a large portion of veterans that I see, um, the, the age group or the age bracket was very much skewed to the lower. So they said the average age was actually 40 to 49 years um, in, our, in our group. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, we've got a large number of veterans that, that are unfortunately very young and very broken. Mm. But even just that first result, I mean, looking at the, the kind of ongoing opiate crisis in the States and, and as I understand, you know, probably not a dissimilar situation in Australia, albeit to a smaller scale. I mean, getting people off those kind of drugs, those kind of pain relief medications, even that in itself must be a, a positive sort of um, uh, outcome of this. Yeah, well, I think it's um, obviously it's a small scale study. Um, you know, it's a low grade, so it's a, a retrospective, retrospective study, um, and we're looking at extending it and improving the study as we move forward to try and improve the level um, of evidence that we're gaining from it. Um, but you're, you're 100% right. The, the number of people on, on high, high doses, large volumes of, of opiates and valiums and things you know, it is, there is that pressure there from, you know, the government, from different bodies to actually try and de-prescribe or remove those, those medications. There's always, you know, you're forever getting the, the reports of, you know, this is what you prescribe. The average doctor in this area prescribes this much. Therefore, you know, please be aware of your prescribing habits and things like that. Mm. So we're always getting those little gentle reminders that, you know, we should be watching what we prescribe and things. And I think this is becoming a, I think a more, more interesting way to, to deal with these chronic conditions, the chronic pains, um, you can see by, I think the rhetoric that is around the, some of the big pharma who are starting to get involved in, in medicinal cannabis, that there, there is a, a very big shift towards this, I think, and I think it's going to increase over the next you know, couple of years. Turning our attention to the Veteran Access Scheme, why is this important specifically in the veterans demographic? I think the, um, the veteran community is a very vulnerable group. Um, a lot of them are, you know, they've been medically discharged from, the, from their job. Um, they're quite young. A lot of them are on pensions. Um, they're not working. Um, the DVA process 
while it is there to support the veterans, it takes time to get people onto different things. And so what we've found over the years, um, or over what I've been doing is, um, it's, very, it's very tricky to get people, um, especially for medicinal cannabis, it's not just to ring them up and, and get them onto this, this process. It does take time and there's several hurdles along the way. So whereas if I saw either of you, um, I'm an authorised prescriber, which means I could prescribe you certain things today and you could walk down to the pharmacy as long as they had them there, you could pick them up. Um, for a veteran, it takes it can take sort of two to three months to jump them through the different hoops that they need. And so um, the Veteran Access Scheme is um, a group of industry um, bodies have, have got together and basically sought to try and... Um, give them compassionate access to a, a limited amount of medicinal cannabis while they're stepping through this process. So we've been um, quite lucky with um, one of the other um, groups to work with um, is a medicinal cannabis company, um, Provocatus, and uh, one of the largest growers, uh, medicinal and first uh, medicinal license in Australia, Can Group. Um, and we've also... Um, using or, or partnering with um, Omni, who's providing the governance, obviously, you know, the decide drugs and things that we're dealing with. So mm. they're looking after the governance for us to make sure the oversight is there. But basically we're trying to support those veterans um, and get them started. So, you know, some of them have just been outside, uh, discharged from say a mental health facility or they're in chronic pain waiting for support. And so we're trying to get them onto the support before um, before we can get them through the hurdles for DBA. And how does one get into the scheme, Michael? Yep, so um, there's um, several different ways. So either on our site from work, um, so we've got the Southern Cross Cannabis Clinic or through um, the Provocatus website. So it's theprovocatus.com. Um, there's a... a a form there for veterans um, and they can click on that. There's, there's two parts. So one for the, the patient, um, they, can, they can print that form and take it to their doctor and, and it can sort of um, assist their doctor in working out how to get them onto the scheme um, or there's for the doctor can um, log in there as well and they can put people onto the program. Um, but if they need any support, then they ring, you know, the... Um, the Provocatus um, hotline there, and they can assist them or guide them through where to go and how to who to see in their, their area. Um, and that's the concept is we're trying to link people to their, their normal GP or someone in the area so that we're not creating fragmented care. There's been a lot of veterans who've tried a lot of these bigger clinics, um, paid an awful lot of money to go there and haven't had the success of getting through to DBA. And so we're trying to provide that um, a smoother process or that education process behind the scenes as well to try and make sure that they can get there. Awesome. And look, we'll make um, links to all of those uh, sites that you mentioned in our show notes. So if, if people are uh, interested or feel that this could be applicable for them, they can, they can certainly jump through that. Um, Michael, what's next for you in this area and, and I guess more broadly, what do you hope to see um, in terms of these uh, sort of drugs as a, as a potential treatment? Yeah. Um, what's more, uh, what's happening for us? Well, we're, 
we're very, very excited about the how the veteran access scheme is going and the, the people we're working with. We're, we're looking forward to, to finding more, more doctors who are supporting, uh, very supportive of this. Um, so if there are any doctors who would like um, us to show them how to do it or would like to be involved mm. in this in the local area or, or they, they look after veterans, we would love to, to, to chat to you and we can sort of support you through that. You don't have to be a medicinal cannabis prescriber. We can assist you with all of that. Um, we're obviously trying to grow that body of, of research. And again, we're sort of looking to the, the next part of the research. Obviously, time and, and money is a big thing for us, as in, I'm, you know, where so everyone gets to their capacity as to what they, they can do. Um, so we're looking at people who are interested in sort of supporting that, um, helping with, with research, particularly in the veteran space. I think um, that's probably an area where that's probably one of our passions and I think an area that we can actually really support. And I think there's a lot of, lot of people there, a lot of veterans who um, would benefit from things like this. And so that's, that's the area where we're going. Obviously, we've seen the benefits of, of the medicinal cannabis. Um, and probably over the years, we've used lots of different companies and lots of different products. Um, so we've actually, uh, there's, a, there's a group of, of veterans who we've, we've got together to try and um, support this in a bigger way, in, in, in the way of um, we're now looking into uh, where we are um, in, in the um, medicinal cannabis manufacturing um, area. And so we're, we're sort of growing that. And through that, we hope to, to further the, the research and things like that as well. So that's where we're sort of heading and doing all my normal GP stuff and being a dad <laughs> and doing all that stuff as well. So that's and a, where and we're a dog owner. Yeah, and, and walking your dog. Yeah. Plenty yeah. runs. We do that very early in the morning, drop the kids at swimming, go for a run, all sorts of stuff. So trying to keep fit. The name of the company is interesting, Provocatus, and on the website it, it says challenged, provoked. Is that necessary to challenge and provoke? Um, it's more provocatus is thought-provoking and challenging. It's sort of, it's, I think medicinal cannabis itself is a very, very, very thought-provoking thing or it's a very, it's, it's not sort of the mainstream. And I think that's, that's the thing we're trying to say is it's a, a thought-provoking, it's a, um, something that is, yeah, it's not the mainstream thing. You've got to really think about it. It's got to be something that is not first line, but it's out there. And, and to, um, for those that, that want to look into it, it's there. Right. Switching topics slightly, you talked about being a father and a GP and a dog owner. What do you do for you? Um, that's always an interesting thing. Um, I guess one of the big things we've we've done is um, all of what we do is um, my wife is heavily involved in in what we do. Um, so Casey, my wife, um, she's the practice manager. She's on the board with uh, with myself in the medicinal cannabis company. Um, very much behind the veteran access scheme. It means that for us, we've got to be very um, making sure we've got time for us, uh, making sure mm -hmm. that uh, we work together, we live together, we do everything together, the kids dropping kids around at sport and things. Um, it, it's a big, big one 
one of the big things we've learned is we've got to have that time away from everything. And so that's very hard to do these days with you know, emails come to your pocket and your phone. They'll do that 24 hours a day. Um, you're always thinking about work. So not only the general practice, but the, the cannabis stuff and the veteran access scheme. So all these different things. We always make sure that, um, as I said, we're dropping kids off at pools at ridiculous hours in the morning. <laughs> always make sure that I've got time for a run. Um, Casey goes to um, you know, Pilates and the gym and things like that. So we've got that fitness time. Um, probably one of the most interesting things, I think, when you say, what about, you know, what do we do? In our hectic sort of um, morning life, we were obviously up very early. We always have a coffee together in bed at 4.20 in the morning while we're waiting for the kids to get up. Then after we've picked up the kids, we always sit down and have breakfast together. So all four of us sit down and we have our breakfast and then the madness continues. So it's sort of this moment of, of pause in our life, which is good. I love that. Do you get any time in the afternoon and evenings to do something similar? Um, usually I'm getting home very late and it's more trying to get the kids packed and ready because they should be in bed because they're going to get up early. Um, so it's helping in that frantic pack up and then it's discuss a couple of things from the day and that's it. Yeah, we know that feeling. I, I tend to find if I don't get it done before work, it just does not get done in my in my own, you know, what do I do for me? There's always that list of it'll get done tomorrow or next week or next month. That's yeah. Mm. Well, Michael, it's it's great to to hear you you're carving out those little oases of of calm in in what's clearly a really busy and and it, from our perspective, it sounds a very productive uh, life. Um, thank you very much for for sharing your your time, for sharing your story and your wisdom. And um, yeah, we certainly look forward to to tracking how things progress in this area because it sounds like you're doing a lot of good for a lot of people. Yeah. Thank you very much. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.